Sorry, um, I just said, uh, I'll just do that again. So Alex, what, you can't hear anything. Hello and welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga. So I'm George Hoare, I tweet at Polwek, and with me today we have uh, Phil Cunliffe, who tweets at the Philippics. Hey, how's it going? And Alex Hockley, who tweets at Alex under, double underscore 1789. Must not forget the second underscore, there's still some guy squatting on the single underscore. Anyway, hiya! Yeah, I actually can't believe that, that you weren't even the first Alex to have an underscore 1789. But um, yeah, that's the internet for you. So, um, welcome back to Phil. You've recently been to Russia. Tell us about Russia. That's right. Did you miss me? Dead air. <laughs> um, we're supposed to say yes there, so... <laughs> yeah, you are. You're supposed in. to say yes. Yeah, and I a wanted a needy to report, question, to be honest. Uh, well, but I wanted, yes, I wanted, greatly. Thank, well, good, thank you, because I wanted to report that um, I'd received communication from our listeners from really weird places like Ireland and Brazil... And they were telling me stuff about how badly they want to be back on the podcast. They were saying how much they missed having somebody who was left wing on the podcast to kind of pull it back from the centrist direction in which it was going. So School uh, ground stuff. School ground stuff. So, yeah, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I was in Russia anyway uh, to get around to your question. And um, I had a good time. And it prompted some thoughts. Tell us those thoughts. I mean... Obviously, tell us those thoughts, please. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, I guess kind of random thoughts, but I thought like the um, that I think Russia and Eastern Europe are probably going to be like the last readouts of capitalism in the future. So when the glorious when the glorious day dawns in the West, I think you know, unlike say um, the kind of Cold War era model of revolution, the kind of Maoist fantasy of uh, the third world countryside surrounding the global metropolitan urban core of the west it'll be more like uh, the west going the west going red and eastern europe and russia will be like the last hangouts of uh, decaying um oligarchic kind of freewheeling capitalism um so that was the thought i had the other thing which is kind of a bit less um portentous 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 and um do you mean pretentious? No, <laughs> a bit less pretentious and portentous was that the um, uh, the our guide that we had during the trip was talking about how happy Russians were in the seventies because he was old enough to remember how happy Russians were in the seventies and sixties with um, they when they built up uh, this new kind of uh, the kind of infamous um, modernist housing in estates around the city. And uh, these fairly small flats were nonetheless much, you know, bigger than what had came before. Anyway, but he said that these flats, he was complaining because they were so small. So, like, I think he said 55 square meters was the kind of flat. And in the kind of Brezhnev era Soviet Union and how much better kind of accommodation is now, at least for those who can afford it. Um, and I was thinking, like, that's the size of my flat. So my yuppie rabbit hutch in England in 2017 is like the size of a Brezhnev era apartment 
that's how crap British capitalism is, that it's not advanced beyond uh, the well, I mean, I, I know you were version of era I, capitalism was able to provide. I know you were away last week, Phil, but, uh, you know, this is what we discussed on the podcast. So, you know, you could you could check that out if you want a little bit more background and depth to what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's clear it's clear that Phil just did not listen to the podcast <laughs> that he wasn't on. It's like, it doesn't exist. Wasn't on it. Doesn't exist. No, um, you weren't talking. You weren't talking about Brezhnev era housing or my trip to Russia or my flat. Well, I don't think my flat was a topic in the podcast when I wasn't here. Well, the fact that you don't know that it was uh, suggests to me. Well, tells me that you didn't listen to the podcast. Um, but no, I think that's a, that's a very valid point. And I'm looking. You know, I, I similarly the the rabbit the yuppie pad that I live in, 55 square meters. No, it doesn't doesn't even reach that. And it is. Yeah, it, it's disappointing that we haven't even got to the the uh, that seventies that Brezhnev era uh, Soviet standard. So yeah, thanks for making us all feel worse. All the yuppies listening to this about our housing situation, Phil. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you know, yuppie, fully automated—that's what a fully automated luxury hipsterism. And um, if it makes you feel any better, George, at least you don't have like your a babushka from the countryside uh, living in the flat with you. Yeah, well, you, you don't know, maybe. Maybe I do. I, I don't. Um, so, Alex, how about you? What have you been What have you been thinking about this week? What's been on your, on your mind? I have been mainly listening rather than thinking, because that's the kind of person I am. Uh, I've actually been listening to something specific, like Algiers' new album. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're kind of this band based in Atlanta. Um, they've just come out with their second album. And a friend of mine... Uh, describe them as communist gospel punk, which I think kind of captures it pretty well. And um, do you guys know this band? Yes, I do. I mean, obviously, the, the, the listeners will probably be able to work this out because you told me to listen to this album. That's how I know this band. <laughs> I have no idea. Yes, I mean, you're not. I have no idea what this band is. So. Okay. Well, anyway, so it, it just, they've just come out with a second album, and it sort of mixtures. It's a mixture of sort of industrial, post-punk, goth. Motown R&B and gospel so it's like a completely uh, a, like pretty innovative mix um, but it's also pretty abrasive and noisy at times you get you get the best of both worlds uh, you get the tunefulness and the abrasive angry stuff um, <clears throat> but like the thematics of the, of the lyrics are basically communist I guess but in the in the kind of old trans-historical idea of communism sort of Baduian sense at least um, so that you know, it just the, the the thematics of of the lyrics are you know us and them about uh, pretty much from the U.S. context of like racial politics and the thematics of slavery and racial oppression uh, and policing and the legacy of slaveocracy. So it's like it's very American in that sense. Um, but this new album, I think, is just brilliant, and I was a huge fan of the previous one, um, and this one has just gotten better. And I think it's. You, because of the lyrics, it could be a bit too right on. Like you kind of grow out of this sort of ass adolescent punk thing. You don't really want mm. like an angry punk shouting in your ear, um, telling you you need a revolution, man. Um, that gets pretty tiring. And you know, you, as as you grow older, you start to appreciate sort of nuance and emotional depth, and and maybe some themes and and ideas which aren't like necessarily right on, but they're an interesting exploration of you know being human or whatever are you saying um, you've become counter-revolutionary as you've got an old <laughs> i just just embracing the, the the full amplitude of human experience that's what i'm saying phil that um, sounds very counter-revolutionary 
<laughs> um, we need a very limited sense of what human is, and that is being a spear into the heart of capitalism. And that's what you should be, and otherwise you ain't worth shit, right? Um, but actually, the thing is about this album is that it's musically very good. Um, it, it does have various emotional registers and textures, so it's not just, you know, again, like someone shouting at you. Um, I just, I think it's really good and I really recommend it. Um, I think a lot of people are talking about it now. I think it just came out in the past couple of weeks. Um, I thought one, one thing which would be interesting to discuss is one of the tracks, um, I did track four, um, which is called Death March. Um, and they, I read an interview with them and they describe it um, as it being written um, about a year ago. So it, it was written in the UK because they live all over the place, one in New York, one in one in the UK, one in Atlanta. Um, hey, they're international like us. Exactly, yeah. So maybe the, with our kindred spirits. Um, but anyway, the, the, they they kind of uh, describe... The, the lead singer said, I imagine someone struggling with denial as they watch the world burn. So that, that's kind of the inspiration behind the song. And some of the lyrics are like, oh, no, 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 this can't be how it falls apart. Constant fear of explosion, crypto-fascist contagion. Um, so it does sort of beg the question whether they're describing Brexit as crypto-fascist. And I can already like hear Phil's hair standing on end when I said that. Um, Call me crypto-fascist again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I just think it's like a, a stunning kind of album, which there's like musical bits, uh, like this same track. It could be from some of the darkest of the Cure's early 80 goth period, or I don't know, maybe like, because it's a bit kind of more loud and abrasive. Maybe Sisters, Sisters of Mercy is a better comparison. But anyway, it's just it's just a thrilling album, which feels really insistent. And it's, you know, kind of political. And I, I think kind of responded to this accusation that, or to this idea that, um, you know, the global financial crisis and then Trump's election, everything would breed um, greater political art. And they're like, yeah, but it hasn't. And why should it necessarily? And they rightly point out that the post-2008 period actually didn't see any kind of engagement with political um, art, at least in terms of like music, that a lot of it was kind of maximalist rap and like a return of disco and so kind of more escapist forms of music um and so they don't try to defend themselves as saying like we're we're political and this is how you should be necessarily but um but that is what they do it's a really banging album yeah i think one of the problems that i've often had with political music is music that that uh, i guess presents itself as explicitly political is often not that good musically and it's very rare to find a band that has two difficult things, which is good being good musically and having good or at least interesting politics. And I think Gang of Four is one that comes straight to mind. Yeah, I was and about I think, to say that, yeah. I think Rage Against the Machine is a good example of how sometimes the music's there and sometimes <laughs> it's not. And if it's not, you just, exactly as you said, you have just somebody kind of shouting at you or just like telling you how to be right on and you think this is like, I don't want to listen to this and, and this is actually... In fact, even undermining the politics behind it, but you well, you don't find that you, you're quite attracted by the the early '80s goth edges. Well, but it's but then there's like but then there's stuff which is you know like pure R and B or like Motown tunes. Like a, a real standout track is the the title track, the third one, "The Underside of Power," which is just it, like it starts off <clears throat> sounding like a fairly abrasive like birthday party style post punk track, and then it. Become, and then you've got this like lovely, tuneful, very Motown-ish chorus. Um, and whereas Rage Against the Machine is just these loud exhortations. So it's like it's political in the in the sense of like it telling you things, um, telling you what to do, but not um, or you know, despite them saying like 
fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, but you do what Rage Against the Machine tells you. Yeah. So, okay, well, I think, <laughs> I'm, just trying to, I'm just trying to think how to, how to segue on. Because I think, that's, I think it's a really, you know, I think it's definitely worth listening to. And there's maybe, so I'm, I'm just thinking of Sleaford Mods in, in the UK, um, which is, I think they're quite a divisive band, one that I'm very much behind and are in, incredible live and, you know, are singing about, singing, well, talking about very political um, things, but not saying we're a political band. And so for that Yeah, they're telling I stories. Yeah, telling stories which which have a political element and which are about the the rage and the dis- disaffection and the kind of just bad food and sh- shit jobs and all that sort of thing. Um, but I think you know I think we're we're not necessarily a music music criticism podcast, although we could be. I think you know. We'll see, <laughs> I'm we'll not see sure what the listeners this think. evidence. We could do it, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be a very good one or one that many people listen to, but we could still record it. But oh, now we've, we've got no problem with that already, so that's fine. Yeah, if anything, we're too successful. We need to lose some listeners. We need to make. We need to just strip away any of the people who are just, just hangers on and just get back to the core. Better few. Okay, so Phil, Phil George, and I are bronies. Phil George and I are bronies, and uh, we're just really into all the rainbow shit. Does that work? What is a what is a brony, by the way? Yeah, oh, we're gonna have to. We're, it's a dude who's into My Little Pony. Uh, and what? it's become a little bit of a thing on the alt right. We're gonna have to come back to this. It's a it's a very important and pressing issue to discuss. Um, what's, what's wrong with being already the moment kind of passed? Just by huh? the way, no, I, nothing. Just asking nothing for a friend. At all. Yeah, no, 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 nothing at all. It's just like this kind of grasp onto some sort of sweet innocence, but with a slightly sexualized element to it, which makes it unsettling. Um, okay, so what have I been thinking about this week? Just to, to commandeer the conversation. Sorry. Lads, um, so I, I basically, I guess I've been thinking and talking a little bit about the idea that the time is right in the UK for a, for a, cent- for a new centrist party. So Philip Collins wrote in the Times on the 23rd of June that now is the moment to launch a new party. If a third force announces itself with a serious manifesto of enterprise and equality, it's easy to see that it might thrive. And this, of course, follows The Economist endorsing the Lib Dems um, in the general election. So... I guess I guess my question for the two of you, and I've had various discussions with people about this. Um, do we do we see a centrist revolution over the horizon in the UK? <laughs> I mean, I like enterprise and equality are such Blairite watchwords, aren't they? Um, and of course, they by that they do mean equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome. Um, but you know, it really doesn't have any future. Like, I would be really surprised if the current moment that we're experiencing leads to a rebirth of centrist politics. It would have to be a product of the parties of left and right as they now have re-become, um, somehow alienating enough of a swathe of the population that these politics would have a future. But it's just, you don't see it having any reach beyond middle-class metropolitans. Phil? Phil, what, what, what do you reckon? I really hope so. Um, because I think, you know, we need more... Um, we need more of a kind of middle of the road, um, consensual kind of hair splitting, reasonable, moderate uh, experts to tell everybody else, you know, why they're stupid and misguided and wrong. I think it's a great idea. I support it entirely. Yeah, I think I I I do too. And I think a lot of people have have sort of raised some really unfair questions, like. Um, who would lead it because Blair's <laughs> fucking toxic? Who would vote for it? Beyond, Again, like, kindred, kindred, beyond, kindred like, spirits telling people, people on Twitter. 
kindred spirits telling people they're stupid and wrong. You know, that's what that's what people come to us for. So, no, I, I do that in my in my day to day life, and it's working out pretty pretty well for me. Just basically <laughs> Lots of hectoring friends. people. Yeah, I've got loads of friends. You haven't met them; they go to another school. But I do have them, and <laughs> they actually really like it when I tell them that I'm smarter than them and I know more about governing, um, and I have better evidence than them. So, yeah. So just to, just to kind of round this out, then we're all we're all in agreement. This this can and must and will happen that we will see a, a centrist party uh, boom it's in the, the UK. It's the wave of the future, and it's the inevitable destiny of mankind. <laughs> <laughs> Riding in on the most decrepit white horse you've ever seen. No, the most decrepit My Little Pony, maybe. Um, <laughs> there we our, go. Our little pony. Yeah. <laughs> Um, to move on to something, I guess, to, to segue on to something a bit more serious or <clears throat> to, I guess to, to kind of build on this a little bit, one thing that I wanted to discuss was Perry Anderson's editorial in the latest New Left Review. So listeners are probably familiar with Perry Anderson, but he's one oh of the... Oh my God, George, you read the New Left Review? Yes. Do you, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a, an interesting journal. It's not, there's a lot of stuff about counting various words and doing some analysis of literature, which I don't, which doesn't really get my motor running. But <clears throat> I, I, I really like Perry Anderson. I think his book on Western Marxism is fantastic. And as I was saying, Phil, before you derailed me and interrupted my intro, Perry Anderson is probably one of the greatest living Marxist historians who's written a number of really interesting books, particularly on the passage from, or the transition from, um, feudalism to capitalism. So that it's uh, it's a very, <laughs> a very pressing, a very pressing and important topic. I mean, he's a, a historian. He's, he's a fucking historian, Phil. <laughs> I mean, if it, don't be such a don't be such a Phil, Estein. That's just like that's unacceptable. You're the first. Podcast. You're the first one who's ever come up with that joke. I just want you to know that. Really, I thought people would have done it quite frequently, given your your kind of the way that you wear your ignorance with with pride. Um, good stuff. Good stuff. George, so, do you want to place Perry Anderson's balls back in your mouth? <laughs> I, I, by the way, hell. I fucking love Perry Anderson. I love Perry Anderson. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm not, yeah. That was just a cheap jive. I, he's such a good writer as well. Anyway, um, I think one of the one of the things which is is in in any of his writing, it's it's always um, it's, it's always just just very impressive the command that he has of of the. The national politics of a, of a range of a range of places in all throughout the world, and I think he always brings something interesting to his analysis. I mean, Phil, feel free to to just to just take him down to, to Chinatown. Um, but this, so this uh, editorial, which is on the French Spring, uh, is, is called the Center Can Hold, and in this he basically looks at two things. So one is the the rise of Macron in France, which is something that we've talked about on this podcast. And the second, which I think is what I would like to ask the two of you about, is sort of the the way that France's um, change position within Europe has had an effect on what the ideal of Europe means and, and what, by extension or by consequence, what the EU is. So I guess this is my first sort of general question for the two of you. And this is, and this is you know, Anderson's starting point to a certain extent, are we moving from a French-led to a German-led idea of Europe? It's a highbrow question, guys, so rise yeah. to it. Well, just, just to double back a little bit to the point about the, the, the idea of Europe, I mean, what Perry Anderson 
does in relatively short bit at the beginning of the article, um, but he's written about this in the past. Uh, if you check out actually his articles in the New Left Review or the London Review of Books from a decade or more ago, talking about the idea of France um, and a concomitant idea of the idea of Europe as a kind of bearer of civilization, how that was coming to an end in around, you know, this was 2002, 2004, and how under stress um, this idea was and that France's position in the world was being put into question uh, and and its, uh, its position as a pole of world culture uh, really having come to an end by that point. Um, and it's interesting that he recaps these points and, and France has continued on that trajectory. It's not like it's had some momentary <clears throat> rebirth or anything since, you know, since the kind of mid-2000s. Um, so what's interesting is that France's position, especially since the crisis, has become increasingly subordinate to Germany, uh, which has dealt it a further blow. And you could say, okay, well, these are just kind of elite ideas. But the interesting thing is that they they kind of go a little bit across French society. Like the, the feeling of malaise isn't something that's uh, just a... Uh, a reflection of, of the elite's lack of confidence or, or, you know, this is something that pervades French society. And they've, to a certain extent, now belatedly have tried with the election of Macron, especially to kind of advance a sort of neoliberal uh, platform and agenda, which, uh, you know, Germany did probably a little bit earlier uh, with the Agenda 2010 uh, under Schroeder. Um, but the idea that like France is sort of hitched to, to Germany as a sort of junior partner grates uh, in various levels of French politics. And probably the only ones who are a little bit more comfortable with it are the kind of central left and the, the remnants of the Socialist Party. Phil? Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that's... This is a kind of an indirect answer to your question, George. One thing that's often left out of these discussions is how much the European Union is, despite... It, the way in which its supporters flock to it, how much of it is about restoring or at least staving off European decline, um, which I think is a problem because surely, uh, you know, the great kind of case that's made for the European Union is the fact that it's brought peace to Europe in the same breath as there's this vision of a united superpower Europe that's able to compete on the global stage against the US and against China that needs to face down an expansionist Russia. So um, it's this total schizophrenia in the way in which the in the way in which the European Union is justified. Inward, outward kind of belligerence and strength um, at the comes um, with internal peace. And so I mean in relation to, you know, there is that certainly is one idea of Europe, um, which is the kind of outwardly aggressive um, expansionist imperial hegemonic vision of Europe, and that is one that the European Union has struggled mightily, unsuccessfully, but mightily, to prolong and continue. And so in that sense, I think it's squandering a tremendous historic opportunity, which is for European nations to um, become more modest in their global outlook and to uh, withdraw from the world stage, um, in the sense of at least being kind of aspirational great powers or attempting to, through their combined weight, become a superpower, but rather to retreat to being economically wealthy states that are able to, if they were able to organize themselves better, would be able to offer their people and their citizens vastly more than they do at the moment through a fairly 
I think through a fairly modest uh, economic and political reorganization, greater liberties and greater prosperity. Yeah, I think that's nicely put because it also like, I mean, maybe people who've listened to this podcast before would maybe think that we're like hard Brexiteers or, you know, kind of nationalists or whatever. Um, hopefully not. But um, I think that's, well, well what, you're, you're not. Uh-oh, we need to have an editorial meeting, but we can do that offline. <laughs> um, but the, this idea, like it actually recalls what Phil just said, the discussions that were had around the time of the Iraq war and France uh, dissenting from uh, the American-led plan to invade Iraq and this idea that that Europe was soft power is against hard power, as I think the, the title of Robert Kagan's book at the time had it. And of course, that was from a critical angle that the U.S. was saying that you know Europe should buck up and face the realities of power. Um, but it's true that there was there was a, a moment, a possibility of creating a sort of a, a different Europe where um, where peace was not based on the condition of of aggression abroad and and indeed domination of of smaller states within Europe. Um, I think one, if I can just pull this out, I think an interesting thing to me because Perry Anderson puts it very explicitly in the article, that the motivation for Europeanization in France, and specifically from the Parti Socialiste, was that to meet the need of selling neoliberalism internally, the PS found a surrogate in, and here I quote, the ideal of Europe. It was in its service that the French were called upon to liberalize and modernize themselves. Um, and so once the EU was in place, every market-friendly initiative could be extolled or excused as required by solidarity with Brussels. Uh, and it's just really fascinating how that switch happens, that as many center-left parties had to, uh, had to sort of shift away from their previous social democratic or socialist politics, but the way that it was, re- that the not just in a practical sense in terms of policies, but at the level of justification, that the EU was literally, the EU as representing cosmopolitanism and interstate solidarity was brought in to replace uh, solidarity uh, at, the, at the national level in ter- as represented by social democracy. And so that, yeah, the I way think that that's... swap is done is like really crystal clear the way he phrases that. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great section of the essay and I underlined those exact same phrases that it's um it just it's just so striking how he hits the nail on the head that europe in the french case was used by the by the normally sort of center left left wing party um as a a kind of an excuse for for saying okay we can't really we can't really make these certain sorts of decisions we can't really take these certain sorts of actions because we have to be accountable we have to show solidarity with europe and it's a i guess it's another sort of flavour of that of that classic what was to become the classic third way argument of, of we can't we can't really do anything about this because the market dictates it or because a force larger than our national our kind of parochial internal national politics um, dictates it. And I guess one thing that this makes me think about, unless Phil you have something to add here? Um well only to say I mean it's not a point it's not he's not the only one to come up with that point about how social democratic parties retreated into the European sphere. So um, it is a good point. It's well made and well taken, but hardly original. I mean, and I don't think it elevates the elevates that the most recent piece about the Macron victory. Um, I think there are two things which uh, it's not... I mean, I don't think it's the best of his um, kind of tremendously ornate and Latinate kind of pieces that he tends to write. But there are two good points which I think he can legitimately claim 
with regards to the debate in the French election. Um, and it does speak to his range as a commentator. So the first one is, and this is something which never came up in the Anglophone press, was a very long book which was published by journalists, 650 pages according to Anderson, a very long book which was published by journalists following around um, the former socialist um, president, Hollande. And it was envisaged, this happened from 2011, and apparently it was envisaged that this book would be able to boost his political profile in advance of this election. And in fact, it did entirely the opposite, according to Anderson. It totally sabotaged and undermined his um, help to contribute to his utterly ignominious downfall as a politician. So, I mean, I think that, you know, you don't get that kind of insight and that kind of important in <clears throat> view on the election without a knowledge, an internal knowledge of French politics. Um, and so, our, you know, Anderson can offer that. The other point which he does makes, which is very good, is pointing out that Marine Le Pen never had a chance. And obviously it's easy to say that yeah. before, before you know, uh, with hindsight. But to his credit, he also said it before. I mean, his line was, um, the centre will hold. And he lays down the numbers very effectively to show how, though there is, it is kind of a, a structural feature now of the Fifth Republic, the internal kind of revolt presented by the FN and its very strong working class constituency that it's managed to capture from the old Communist Party. Nonetheless, it was in no position to um, take over. And so, and that was, you know, it was a point worth making because obviously it was easy with all the political volatility to get swept away by the predictions of a very tight race or the possibility of an ultimate um, Le Pen victory. So I think those two points were the strongest that came through for me. Yeah, no, that's really, it's good that you've highlighted the point about Le Pen and, and the FN in France, because it, as you said, it forms like a, it takes a, an important structural role in French politics, the FN, as the boogeyman uh, to which the neoliberals can bounce off of, of the center. Yeah. Um, and it also shows the failure of that policy, because as Anderson points out that the FN is so internally contradictory and that it actually used to rely, the, the sort of old reaction, the old Catholic reaction that it used to rely on, actually, and on an economic level, they were quite right-wing, they were quite free market uh, and, and pro-European, and only in the past sort of 10 years or even less than that have they shifted to becoming anti-European and then also at an economic level defending the welfare state, being anti-neoliberal, if that's not too clunky a way of putting it, um, and that these internal contradictions are never really challenged because they're... Exclude, the FN is excluded, you know, it's sort of the cordon sanitaire that they have um, from from discussion, from integration in the, in the political class. And if they were more involved, not only those would those contradictions show, but their sort of internal corruption would also show. They would be embroiled within the corruption of the Fifth Republic uh, and would be seen as just another corrupt political party. Uh, and it, the fact that they maintain their outsider status is partly a result of their exclusion, which, as you say, ends up being counterproductive. Fortunately, they don't actually have that much support. It ends up, you know, they still got fewer votes than all abstentions combined at the presidential election. Uh, so I think Anderson's right to, to show how um, not only has a kind of strategy of excluding them has failed, but at the same time, they aren't, were never that much of a serious threat. And actually, they, they serve a useful purpose to people like Macron in France. Mm. No, I think that's a really that's a that's a well made point in this article. One thing which also struck me <clears throat> was that 
I kind of wondered if, if Anderson had maybe been listening to to our podcast because there's a bit um, where he talks about about Macron and he says neo neon lit with hype in a jubilant international and sycophantic domestic press Macron is presented as France's version of Trudeau or Obama or for those with selective memories Blair and then he continues personally although much has been made of his charm half the country has so far proved immune to it on the eve of his first of the first round 46 percent of the population expressed their dislike of him his campaign having left among many an impression of arrogance pretension and stridency so we, we when we talked about the cult of personality of of, uh, of of these centrists i think maybe maybe perry was you know he was he was <laughs> one of these one of our our core listeners right because oh, that, that's I've, i think that's an imp- that's an important I've, I've point got a to thing make, on right? this yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I've, I've, I've got a thing of this because uh, this just came out. This was in, in so many media outlets yesterday and today again. Um, and it is a piece uh, across the board which describes in meticulous detail the meticulous arrangement of uh, Macron's official photographic portrait, which will hang uh, in you know French government buildings all around the country and you know abroad, France's uh, territories abroad. Um, and... All French presidents have their official portrait, but this one, I mean, I don't remember the past ones, but this was surely way more mediatized uh, than the past ones. And they all describe it in the same way. They go through the details. You know, I mean, Quartz had a thing on it. The FT had another thing on it. All major media outlets kind of going through, pointing out the pictures like, okay, so Macron's in front of his desk, leaning back, smile on his lips. It means I'm a modern, relaxed, confident leader. Um... He's also got de Gaulle's memoir, and then he's also got some other uh, books on there which show his connection to the legacy of French culture and literature. And then he's also, also importantly, let's not forget, two iPhones, two iPhones on his deck. I'm the tech generation. I support startups. I want France to become a startup nation. But all fucking media outlets do this across the board. They're all reporting the same thing. So you can just imagine the press release and the media pack that was sent to journalists from the Elysee telling them exactly how to talk about this portrait, this outstanding portrait of France's new, fearless, modernizing leader. I mean, it's just such bullshit. And, you know, he'll have his honeymoon period. But as Anderson says, like most French people aren't buying this either. Yeah, it's, it's like the very early days of Facebook where you, you had carefully constructed this picture, which had like your favorite book or CD or something in the background to show that you were cool, but also had these other indicators. to. It's like to a MySpace page more than it is Facebook. Yeah. It's more MySpace. F- yeah, yeah, maybe you're right, actually. And this is his official, his official, uh, his official portrait. Um, but I, I guess oh, another, I another, to, to just... another classic, like oh, another classic kind of centrist, uh, left neoliberal uh, sort of trope is he's standing in front of open windows, like he's indoors, but he's letting the fresh breeze blow in. We're, we're like we're inside, but we're also open, and and like just the imagery is so fucking obvious, you know. Um, but you know, it, 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 his revolution is over. The bum's lost. You know, his time is up. Mm. I mean, there's there's maybe an interesting scholarly work to be done on the the aesthetics of uh, of kind of centrist technocracy and <laughs> third way kind of portraits. Um, I'm probably sounds, not going to write it. Sounds like a great great project. Well, it's it's probably more valuable <laughs> if you than, get than funding. Of, yeah, okay. yeah, you, you would get funding to do that definitely because probably one of the, the people funding it would, would say, oh, that's really good. I'm sure it'd be very positive. It'd be, but I guess... W- well, it could one be thing like I'll... the semiotics. Uh, how would it be called? It would be called the semiotics of new 
uh, what would he be? Come on, help me out. The semiotics. Look, you're the academic. You're the one in your in your ivory tower with your five dollar words producing <laughs> words that nobody reads. So you, you can finish this one yourself. The semi. Okay, the semiotics. The semiotics of, of the and... of the entrepreneurial state and well, not the entrepreneurial state because that's an actual that's book which actually. refers to something that's... else. I was going to say but the, the entrepreneurial leader or the semiotics uh, of of anti of anti-fascist victory. How about that? But that is the subtitle. You need a title, which then is followed by a colon before this subtitle. Sharp so, suited and gap tooth. <laughs> colon. <laughs> that can be the title of this episode. I don't want. I don't want to be like too personalizing and and you know like body shaming. But like his little gap tooth does give him this kind of really boyish, slightly. Slightly camp air, I guess, you know, which, um, Is it camp? you know, maybe that's unfair. Huh? Yeah, maybe it's a little bit kind of entertainery, um, perhaps, but anyway, so we well, can, you know, we they, can... They, they, they say like gap tooth is like, you know, this is, this is from, uh, Canterbury Tales, even, you know, gap tooth is like indicative of promiscuity. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's, I mean, you learn something. Um, yeah. So just, just one, just to kind of round this off, I guess one of the, um, one of the things I found interesting about the, the Anderson, or, or it, it kind of got me thinking, was, um, and this is relating it to a certain extent back to this idea of Europe. So Anderson basically says, in not so many words, that having a kind of a hologrammatic or a kind of non-entity um, such as Macron in in charge, really, it, it basically spells the end of this French idea that France is the bearer of universal history, and, and through France, Europe, that through the French people's progression, you will see the the kind of the world historical unfolding of this is where humanity is, is going to. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that this, this is a, an idea that we don't give too much credence to, right? The, that France for, for any time in the past 50, 100 years has been at the avant-garde of, of, of world historical progress. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, no. I, maybe not world historical progress, but it was a, a pole of world culture which had certain ideas of civilization which could definitely be counterposed <clears throat> to the American version or the British version. Um, and maybe nowadays, you know, I guess you would say to the Chinese version or whatever. But um, I think that what Macron symbolizes for a lot of French people is like, we need to leave that old stuff behind because it's associated with the dirigé state, um, with Gaulism. Um, with this old kind of maybe more traditional culture, except that it was a very modern culture as well. So th- there's a contradictory elements to it. But what they, what Macron and his supporters uh, internally in France and abroad see him as, as being, I mean, you know, it, it's the adoption of Californianism, right? It's the iPhones, it's a startup culture. It's the cultural reference points are not France. It's not kind of classical European modernity, but it's like California, postmodern Californianism. I mean, I don't, you know, I think the, um, I'm not sure if casting it in terms of cultural competition is exactly right, but the, the idea that, um, but it's not competition, it's not, it's not, hang on, it's not competition, it's precisely an adoption, it's the abandonment of France as an independent pole of world culture and civilization, and it's falling in behind kind of the American postmodern one. What I mean is, I guess, more that the, um, more that the underlying thought is the idea that France's centrality to modern political history means that the stages it goes through are in some way um, representative or um, emblematic or paradigmatic 
of larger larger scale political development. So it's like the the kind of paradigmatic paradigmatic exemplar of larger political trends. And I think that you know that's worth um, that's worth thinking about how for how much that's still true. And also you know like I mean Anderson's previous line has always been that Paris is the modern capital of intellectual reaction. Right. So ever since Paris went postmodern. Um, it already a yeah. long time ago in the 70s or 80s it abandoned the idea of being the center of enlightenment philosophy and thought in favor of being the center of postmodern um, degeneration effectively philosophically well, and, and 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 the french and the french new right as well for that matter which actually yeah. looking back on it were much more in tandem than it seemed probably at the time um, the cia were fans of it i think that was like a recent thing that we've learned right yeah that's just 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 surface doesn't it yeah um so sorry i just kind of cut you off there alex but yeah so it has just surfaced at the cia i just wanted to um, shout cia that was all well now we're gonna now they're gonna start listening so we're gonna up our re- our listenership but one <laughs> or two or three of us might get murdered so yeah well, you know pros and cons or we might get um, funding which might be better <laughs> yeah actually just to any cia people <laughs> listening we are shields we, we we will sell out quite 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 a reasonable price, um, we think. Um, no, so just to, just to kind of, I guess any just pay any, for any our SoundCloud hosting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just pay for our, our editing software and our SoundCloud hosting, and we will say anything. Um, no, so just any any final thoughts on this before we before we kind of wrap it up for this for this this uh, episode. One little one, one little one, which is. Again, going back to the Anderson piece, he makes because Macron won the presidential election and then absolutely swept with his uh, with his La République en Marche like phony party uh, swept the legislature. Um, he makes a point that this en marche is totally dependent on Macron, in the, you know, in a personal sense, um, and he that it's not a wider party. There's no structures behind him, and so he makes a comparison with Forza Italia's dependency on Berlusconi. Um, and I think that's interesting because obviously we've got a Berlusconi thing going on here on this podcast, so it's it's maybe a good point to kind of return to, which is that Wait, you can't imagine. Well, what? what I was saying that thing? oh, you know that we've got like it's called Alpha Bunga Bunga the podcast. I've so, got you know, no, idea, yes, what, like, I've got no kind of, idea what you're talking about. Please explain. Yes, listen. Anyway, that's the, Alpha Bunga Bunga. Yeah, we, we like we're referred to it as like the age of Berlusconi. You know, the, the kind of <laughs> combination of populism and technocracy. Jesus, Phil, did you not get the memo? Anyway, but so Anderson makes a comparison of Almarche's dependency on Macron with La Forza Italia's dependency on Berlusconi, but that was actually quite ended up being quite stable for a long time. And you can't imagine that happening in the late 2010s or early 2020s when Macron will rule. I just don't see him being nearly as resilient and persistent a figure on the political stage as Berlusconi was in the 90s and 2000s in Italy. Like in France, the rejection levels are too high relative even to Italy. And, and you know, like Italy of the 90s and 2000s, that was like almost the, the, the case study, the emblematic figure of sort of dysfunctional elite politics and uh, and personalization of politics and combined with, uh, amongst a wider populace, like a futile political rejectionism. Um, you've got that in France, but kind of even stronger. And I guess my point is as centrism is falling apart uh, across the West, you don't see really Macron having the same, um, the same persistence uh, on the political stage as Berlusconi did. And his, sure. and his whole movement would fall apart as a consequence. I'm not sure. I mean, I think the, um, I think he, I mean, it's partly to do with the political structures of the 
states. So I think, I mean, he's, you know, simply by virtue of the presidentialist system, which nobody has, you know, no single kind of French leader, at least as far as I know, has kind of exploited to the full, fullest extent possible, um, that he's in a position to do that now, particularly that they've ended the possibility of uh, cohabitation because the general election coincides with the presidential election in the same year. So he has concentrated tremendous power. And um, even if he, you know, he, regardless of his, um, regardless of the relatively weak support that he has in the country in terms of the final vote that he got in the second round of the election and the f low turnout for the um, parliamentary election, I think he is still going to be um, bold in using that power to push through an agenda. So I think on the contrary, I think he might be the... Um, he might be the kind of uh, the technocratic leader who manages to, in the particular guise that he has, to survive the political volatility and the disintegration of technocracy that we've seen elsewhere. I mean, the interesting thing about Macron is, and this is kind of suggested, I guess, in the Perry Anderson article, is that in a way it's the, you know, I mean, talking somewhat kind of abstractly, but it's the system itself. So Macron and his fake kind of party that's been put together under his own initials is the system itself that's represented by it. There is no, it doesn't represent kind of any kind of civil society group. It is the political elite and the state elite that has generated um, its, um, its own kind of political expression. And yeah, anyway, so I think he might be, um, you know, the times that were, even though it is kind of the disintegration of technocracy, the way in which that figures is, uh, you know, the particular expressions that it has in different countries is highly varied and specific. And so in France, um, it might take the form of a powerfully presidential figure who will ram through a particular kind of uh, centralizing neoliberal agenda. Okay. Which apparently he's trying to do this summer while everyone's while everyone's on break. Because the French have yeah. those huge long summer vacations where they don't do anything. Certainly don't not hate. washing. Don't hate Phil. Don't hate Phil. Good for them. Good for them. Yeah, well, they should at least so they should at least wash more anyway while they have those long summers. Oh, that's just like the lamest prejudice. So okay, I think I think just just to kind of leave it there, guys, I think there's um there's some really interesting points there, particularly around is is Macron going to be this long-term technocratic leader for this for France as this entrepreneurial state? I mean, the problem with with French, obviously, they, they don't have a word for entrepreneurial state, um, despite apparently Indeed. now being one, which means bad wages, long hours, stress, and a ninety percent chance of going bust within two years. But I think there's a really there's a you know just to bring it back to some of the concerns of the podcast. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a big a big question for us, and and one of the reasons why we're talking about Macron again is, you know, does he does he represent one of these morbid symptoms of the, the the interregnum? So, I think listeners will will hear will have heard these phrases, and will know where they come from by now, hopefully. Um, so it's Gramsci. Shout out to to my boy Nino. Um, so yeah, thanks thanks very much for, for for contributing. So listeners, join us again next time. For, for more global politics on Alpha Bunga Bunga. Say goodbye, Phil and Alex. Bye bye, Phil and Alex. Bye, Phil and Alex. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Oh, when as soon as I said it. What? Uh. Right, bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs>